Hello, welcome to the Cartography Podcast. Today, we have a very special episode with a very special guest, my friend Mary. She's a former hard-hitting journalist, but I just recently learned through sources from on-the-ground chatter that she had a very important interview recently. <laughs> Mary, is this true? Have you had a very important interview? <laughs> Um, you could you can definitely call it important um, or interesting, um, to say the least. Where was it? <laughs> it was with none other than um, the the Space Force. <laughs> how did how did no. you get the idea to apply there? <laughs> well, listen, look, I've always been interested in space. I've always been interested. <laughs> What, inter- and, what interests you about space, Mary? What is it? In the universe, in the universe, and you know, <laughs> analytics, and of course, like anything dealing with America trying to get to space and occupy Mars as like the first, um, sounded very intriguing. And so, I thought this was the best way. You're hitting, you know, two birds with one stone, serving in the military at the same time. It's the space force and. You know, I like like we'll talk about later on in my in my um, in the podcast. Um, I am in a in a transitional period in my career, and so I was just <laughs> I was looking at exactly what opportunities were there, and uh, I did see the the space force. <laughs> so, so was this an on the phone interview, or was this in person, or what, what was it? Yeah, it was an on the phone interview, and they were just asking me a bunch of questions about my experience, um, just about you know my my physical health um and and then you know to my surprise i mean it just you start off you're online and you're at the space force and you're excited because they're like apply for the space force but then it (laughs) click on (laughs) you click on it and it launches into the (laughs) airforce.com see this is my theory about it this is my website i think the space force is a marketing strategy by the military to get Mm -hmm. people to sign up for the air force that's what i think it is like i think they're releasing all of these like like have you noticed over the last month they released like three or four videos of like what they claim to be aliens and like ufos and all of this stuff i think they're like intentionally putting this stuff out there to recruit people for the air force and also to get like more government funding and so they can justify more spending i think that's what it is I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it's definitely a a great tactic, I think, to use great strategy. If that was the case, um, I, I did. I will say, end my pursuit of the space force um, <laughs> when they were telling me about having to take like the Air Force training and the ASVAB test, um, and I was just like, you know, there's nothing wrong with the Air Force. The Air Force is prestigious. It's, but um, you know, I'm not an engineer. I'm not you know, someone who, who, um, I feel would be best suited for the air force. So I just, so you're not pursuing it anymore. I'm not pursuing it. I mean, I know they did tell me what they did say was everyone that we're recruiting from right now is through the air force. Um, and I believe from what I've read again, I don't know anything like how true this is, but about 2000, uh, volunteers from, from the air force that had just finished their training, uh, you know, wanted to go to the Space Force and we're going to be recruited to the, the Space Force. Again, I don't know. And I don't know. What do you, I mean, what do you think? Well, what did they ask you in the interview? 
Um, I mean, they were just telling me like what I, I was interested in, you know, and then like my height and it fit if it fit my weight and what my highest degree was. And they kept telling me about like all the requirements for the Air Force. Like, did you take the ASVAB test, which is an Air Force test to see what level of um, what level you qualify for? The higher you do on the ASVAB test, the better you know position you'll be in. Um, in the Air Force. So that's actually, um, sorry to interrupt, uh, just to clarify, the ASVAB is a general military test that, that everyone who um, who signs up has to take, and they use it to basically determine, you know, which jobs you're qualified for. I'm sorry, go ahead. What's on the test? Oh, man, it's like, uh, it's a lot of, it's like exactly what you would think, you know, so they, they, they basically do their best to translate all of the MOSs or military occupational specialties into just a battery of questions that, you know, they figure kind of match, you know, so like they, they will have uh, sort of things of like, like diagrams of engines and different, uh, you know, kind of just all sorts of stuff. I mean, I took, I took some practice ones. I mean, when I, yeah. when I was like, <laughs> when I fell for, I don't want to say fall for it because I know what you're saying is like, you think it's a air force tactic to recruit and it could be, but when I was excited about it, I did take some practice ones and some of it was mechanical. Uh, you're, you're talking about car engines and like electrical. <laughs> I, <laughs> Why, what, what makes you think you're qualified to be a member of the space force? <laughs> exactly it is is i didn't i didn't know if i was qualified um what made you interested in joining the military in first place well i always knew that i i mean like i said i was in i'm in the middle of a career transition and i Mm -hmm. wanted these opportunities i wanted to like explore other opportunities and again i've always been interested in the space force so the fact that they are saying they have now a space force for the military. I just thought it'd be the perfect combination of taking what my interests were, combined it with, you know, serving my country. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I thought that would be the best way, but also it just it sounded exciting. They they had like analytical positions um, that were listed under the space force, but every time I came to click it again, it, it did transfer me to the air force. So. <laughs> I mean, I just thought, yeah, so I just thought that it would be a good opportunity or something different, and I I wanted to explore it. I think we're at a point where we're literally making up, like, fake and virtual enemies to justify, like, more government spending and investment to, like, re-engineer the economy. Like, I think that's what's going on. Whether it's coronavirus or aliens, like, this is, I think that's the point we're at right now. I mean, I don't know about the aliens part, but I will say I did I did put a lot more thought into it. And I was thinking, well, like how many people, the only people that could really help with the exploration and the, you know, and going up to the moon and to occupy Mar- Mars are, are electrical people or people that are engineers and have, have that kind of aptitude. And so the fact that they were saying anybody can be recruited and anybody from the airport force can be recruited i mean i just think it's a lot more it's a lot more like you said a lot it's a it's a very specific skill set in order to even uh, explore that field so you're right i mean how can they what are ten thousand people in this the space force going to do to take us there or to like you know what i mean so for people who don't know mary's background is uh she, she used to be a journalist so what what in your journalist uh experience 
makes you feel that you're qualified to be in the Space Force. Well, that's the thing is I I didn't know it, the Space Force itself in a tor- in terms of like taking us to space and like occupying Mars and like, you know, be, and being able to navigate again. I, I believe there was like a memo from the Space Force, which is like to protect American interests in space and to make sure. And I'm, and I'm just thinking in my head, like, I don't know how someone you know, with my expertise could do that. But if there's analytical positions and there's training programs, if this is such a new, this is a new force that, that is being presented to the military, then yeah, why not? Let me sign up for it. Interesting. Um, yeah. So are, are you still trying to work uh, within journalism or are you also well, looking to do other stuff now? I think part of, uh, part of me is always going to, you know, love what journalism stood for and earth should stand for and like what it was 20 to 30 years ago um for me it's it was all about just facts and being able to exploit not exploit i'm sorry that's wrong exploit expose corruption um can you talk a little bit more about that i'm sorry like can you just sort of do you have any kind of um anything in your background in particular that really motivates you to to go into that sort of thing exposing corruption yeah um i mean you just look at what what's happening, you know, right now in the country and different, you know, me and me and Jay, we talk about this all the time, but like tech companies, um, we talk about like environmental issues as well, like environmental companies and how they're, you know, exploiting people for their use. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's nationwide. And back then you had real hard hitting journalists that would, even overseas, if you go to like Vietnam or you um, are, are going to Venezuela and you can expose the, the corruption there. I mean, these were real topics that brought attention uh, worldwide and actually were able to help people. And it was just based on facts. Um, I mean, I'm going to take the example of what's going on today. I was I was watching CNN and I was watching Fox News and I was reading digitally a lot of the things. And I mean, they've just become opinion uh pieces you know like do you think there still is do you think there still is like hard-hitting journalism being done or do you think it's just totally gone it's very limited i would say because one journalists need to have money to be able to support themselves and to continue to go and have the resources to be able to to continue what's called long form journalism you're not going to just find a story or the truth in a second. You're not going to just find a story overnight. You have to really dig. You have to do interviews. You have to find the facts. You have to go there to places yourselves and and document exactly what's happening. And that takes time. And right now in a world where, you know, we're in a, in a world of technology and it's so instant, um, people don't, don't have the time. Media companies don't have the time for that anymore. They want what sells. And what sells is you have right now what a polarizing America is, the left and the right. I, I was watching, you know, I don't know if you guys saw uh, Trump walking uh, in front of the St. John's church and he's holding up a Bible. Did any of you guys? Did <laughs> I, you saw guys... It. I saw it. I sure did not. I was, well, yeah, <laughs> it was a message, right? We don't know exactly. But what, in, in you could say even the 60s or the 70s, Walter Cronkite, he would 
go up in television, he'll be like, we see the president. He's, you know, walking right now after a overnight protests, uh, some violence, some looting, but a lot of people passionate and anger about what happened to George Furman. The president is showing himself. He's going up to St. John's um, Church and he's holding up the Bible. Those are just facts, right? Everything I just listed were facts. Mm-hmm. Well, now, now you have uh, CNN who's saying, who wants to add their opinion and they're like, look at what the president's doing. He's clearly sending out a message that he's just doing it for, for uh, you know, a what's, a what's it called when you I'm blanking out here, but he's just doing it for show. Yeah, he's just doing it for for show. Uh, he clearly is. Um, he clearly doesn't care about people. First of all, that's an opinion. But then you also look at Fox, and you and he's and then they're saying, what are they saying? They're saying, look at Trump. You know, he's really showing solidarity. He's bringing people together. He's trying to show that we're strong. And I'm just like, you know, this isn't really your opinion. Isn't what what is what journalism is it's become completely dead and and oh here i i see um the fire talk about hard-hitting journalism i mean we are right here in the thick of it jay is at least this is in my neighborhood right before we were going to record the podcast like somebody came and pulled the fire alarm in my building and a couple of the other apartment buildings around so like i mean so this is actually this is perfect i mean this is like a really good way for us to i think highlight um, one of the themes of our discussion, which is going to be how we're sort of experiencing this whole, you know, not only the, the COVID pandemic, but just like a lot of this uh, civil unrest that we're experiencing um, in, our, in our various different locations. I mean, obviously we can, we can hear what's going on where Jay is. He's right pretty much in the thick of it in Seattle. I mean, do you want to kind of talk yeah, a you little know, bit before, about that? Before we go on, I just wanted to say that I think it's like largely social media and digital media that has like fundamentally destroyed the business models of mm-hmm. like legacy, um, like news and media companies. And they're just like trying to adapt in this new uh, digital environment. But uh, did you ever work on any, like, did you ever work at any protests or anything, Mary? I did. Um, I worked for several different companies. I worked for BuzzFeed News. I worked for ABC News. Um, and when uh, Trump was first elected, there was, you know, the, the travel ban protest. There was the March for Our Lives protest. There was the, um, the anti-gun protest, um, which has a different name, but I, I again, am blanking. Um, and I had to kind of go out there and document exactly what was happening. So what is it generally like for these reporters who are like, on the ground in the middle of these um like like riots or protests or like situations that feel like physically dicey i think you always have to put yourself in a situation where you make people who are in the protest whether it's march for our lives or whether it's for um you know the women's march or whatever like you're a part you're with them right you can't make them feel like you're against them and you're trying to come up with a point or or that you're or that you're just neutral you i think in order to um sorry guys i've got sirens again this is the lengths we go through to bring the content to the listener this is how far we go all right it's almost gone Sorry, Mary, go ahead. No, it's not. This is perfect. I mean, protests are happening. Things are getting some, some violence is, is erupting and you know, the, there's fires. <laughs> so, um, no, I, I mean, 
it just really depends, right? Um, you're supposed to be a neutral character, and usually I am. I just I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm documenting, I'm videotaping, I'm interviewing people. Uh, but you know, in, in certain situations, um, I think in order to get an interview, you do have to come off as like, hey, you know, I I, I saw what you did. You know, um, do you have anything to that? Um, and you have to be just very careful because there are protests that are dangerous and and. And you just have to be very uh, careful. I, you know, there's a lot I want to say, but I'm, I'm, I think I just need to hold my tongue because I don't want to say too much. But it sounds like what you're saying is it, it uh, is is a strategic way of kind of getting in and getting information. You, it yeah. helps to be sympathetic to, to who you're talking to. Yeah. It seems like it's evolved sure. to a point where like there's a, a clear company strategy and then the journalist job is to impose that narrative onto like the event that's unfolding like that's that's what it seems to me as a viewer at least i mean i know how you would you would think that but anytime i got sent out on an assignment it was just you know video you know i was doing live video at the time so it was when facebook live was at a rise and it was just like go out there and document it and and do the facebook live and i was out there maybe three or four hours just documenting these protests and you know doing an interview and and i mean i think that's i mean i was different i think that's how it should be i think what comes what becomes the difficult part are the are you know when media companies you know then edit certain footage to then fit a certain agenda which it has become but like my job was always it was live it was very straightforward i don't know if that answers your question i have yeah, kind yeah. of a question going off of that if you don't mind so sure. to to the extent that you kind of saw your work published mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about I mean, was there any difference in general between what you thought you were producing and what ended up being published? Okay, so yeah, there. I would say, um, and this is not to criti- criticize my my last job or any job I've had. Um, I'm the like I said, I'm I'm a person that that I, I I like to be straightforward. You know, if I'm interviewing a victim or a family member, or if I'm interviewing just anybody in particular, a, a, a policeman, uh, you know, some, a judge, a lawyer, whatever it is for a story that I'm doing, I want it to be like, hey, this is it. This is straightforward. Um, in the previous company I worked for, part of our vibe was to be entertaining and it was to be salacious, right? <laughs> so our goal was then to take everything that all the quotes that we've done it, but then put in our own opinion on it or put in a more salacious tone to it. So then it would be like, I mean, we can have like a story like, um, uh, uh, and this is actually a true story. I spoke to a guy from uh, the father of one of, um, this was like a 20 year anniversary of Columbine. Do you remember, do you know that? Uh, yeah. The Columbine oh, shooting. And, I, and it was about 20 years 20 years later, I believe that I spoke to the father of one of the victims. And I told him, I was like, how do you feel now? Do you have any hate towards the shooters? What's going on? I, yeah. And I mean, these were the questions that I had to like, well, it was just to see exactly what was going on. And he, so does, does like somebody, does some like your manager or somebody come up to you and say like, this is like what you're going to have to do. Or is this just like you on your own doing this? 
No, yeah, yeah. Someone t tells me. I'm, I mean, I'm completely managed. They're like, okay, it's the 20 year anniversary. Can you please, you know, call mm -hmm. the victim fathers <laughs> and just get information as to what's going on? And I mean, look, it's my it's part so of what my is job. what is it what does it feel like like when you're sitting at your desk like just ready for like another normal day at work and then they come in and they drop that on your desk. <laughs> I mean, it is hard um, with like, but with every job, I mean, they have its, you know, disadvantages. I mean, you have a doctor whose goal is to save a life and, and, mm -hmm. and he doesn't. And then he has to go tell the family, that, you know, we didn't save a life. I mean, that's just part. Of, I, I look at it as it's part of the job. Well, of course, it also sounds like that's kind of the workflow that you're used to, right? Just like getting right. behind whatever they, you know. Right. That wasn't my issue. I think my issue was when I did speak to this father and he was telling me how he was, you know, forgiven everything and he's at peace now, he did say at one point, you know, and I can't remember exactly. I don't have the article in front of me. I did write it, but at some point, like how he, you know, was angry that they had to do, they had to do that and that it couldn't, and we had to spin it like victim's father still not forgiving or something after 20 years and that just wasn't the case uh, but we used his quote so we, it's not like he can dispute it and um <laughs> he used that yeah it was you know what i mean and so and it wasn't my choice i wrote the article the way i wanted to and then you have editors who then change it up and then do a different headline um so more than twice i mean more than once that's happened and, and that part I, I do have an issue with um, but you know, it is, it's part of the job and it's, and it, it's what sells, you know, yeah. consumers aren't, I mean, it's funny because our company still ended up getting shut down because we, we didn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't change the story. Yeah. You have to work exactly. next time. You almost exactly. saved them, you know, you almost saved them. <laughs> almost saved them. It just wasn't quite fake enough <laughs> to make enough money. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's blame it on you know, the father. You know, I feel like we're giving journalists a bad rap right now. So, what are what are some of the what are some of the unexpected positive experiences that you had as a journalist? You do live a very rich life, I will say, in so many aspects. Because what you're that you're then forced to throw yourself in situations you normally wouldn't see yourself in. And really, and why I got into it was just to connect to people that you normally wouldn't connect to or even talk to or meet um, and understand exactly, get kind of get outside of your bubble and understand exactly what uh, people are going through. You know, if you, when, and it's not just like, I'm not talking about, you know, oh, the, the part, you know, people who are in poverty and people who um, are struggling because that is very much is part of the job and it's very rewarding to go there and see and be able to expose some of these stories that you know of, of suffering but it's just even normal everyday people that have maybe lost a loved one or um, and that needed someone to talk to I mean you you know some of these people especially you know families who have had you know lost lives from whatever occasion um or even like um just like a, a big story like you have a sex cult story like nixium um where women were kind of um brainwashed into going into this like cult-like organization even just talking to some of these people they do want their stories told they do want to talk about their daughter and their sons and kind of keep a legacy and what they represented and the heroes that they 
you know, were to them. I mean, it's just, they, they do need an ear. And, and I think it's very, it's a, it's a very comforting way. I, I, like I said, there are, there are absolutely, and it's getting even worse in journalism, um, exploitation happening and, and, and since you, um, you become insensitized to it and there is, there's no sensitivity around the situation. Absolutely, you have those situations, um, but there are also many, many people that maybe not right away, but that do want want to tell their story. What do you, What do you think are some of like what's the economic situation of most journalists right now? Like, like my impression is that the industry is like completely under siege and under stress, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and people are like extremely underpaid, and most of the people writing these articles are just like interns and people they're paying like minimum wage as contractors like what's the real state of like um being an employee at like a media outlet it's definitely a dying field i mean i I listened to some of your podcast last time and how you were saying how you believe that some of what's going to be left of journalism are kind of these high uh and high these hard-hitting influencers on social media you know well yeah i don't even think it's going to be hard-hitting i think it's going to just be like um people like basically just going out and getting news locally and like personality driven content creation where like, I mean, I could even Mm -hmm. imagine it to like, like people like Andy know I'm talking about. There's a couple other people doing this in other cities, but like I could even imagine it getting to a point where like say Andy know and like three other people in different cities start their own uh, like YouTube channel or Patreon or D live account or whatever. And then like become an organically decentralized network. Like I could even see something like that happening where you're combining the personality. I feel like yeah. they have things like that kind of already, maybe in like a slightly, I mean, isn't sort of something like, uh, I don't know, like Young Turks or uh, something like that kind of an example of that? Yeah, that's a, a big example of that. But you even see that in mainstream media now. It's become so polarized. There's never, you know, um, you're not going to, you're never going to tune into a network like CNN or Fox or um, NBC, MSNBC, whatever, and think you're going to get impartial news. Um, um, it just doesn't happen anymore. It's it, You have to have a personality around it. You have to have a, an agenda. You have to have an opinion. And the people that are going to tune in are the people that, you know, agree with you and want, and want other uh, fellow, fellow individuals that agree with them. Well, even like even like the legacy media has moved on to like adopt that model a little bit, mm-hmm. like how like how Fox has Tucker Carlson and then CNN has like yep. Don Lemon and Jim and Sean Hannity as well. Yeah, like and they pay these people like tens of millions of dollars, right? Yeah, exactly, tens of millions of dollars, and but that's what gets the audience. At the end of the day, like you said, it's all about um, it's all about profit and what is attracting viewers, what's keeping you know the ad sales up. Um, and, and that's it's the, per- it's the personalities ultimately, right? The personalities of the opinions that they, you know, that they, you can't just have any personality. You have to have someone that is saying what you want to hear. Um, and it's, it's not, I mean, NPR, I don't know if it's one of the few, I haven't listened to them in a while. Um, one of the few impartial uh, outlets. <laughs> why, why do you think nobody listens to NPR? <laughs> I'm not saying no one listens to it. I'm just saying, like, I don't know how small, how much smaller it's gotten over the years, or if more people are gravitating towards NPR because it's one of the few. I, again, I don't know. I'm just 
I'm speaking out, you know, on top of my head here, um, but they're becoming like, I don't even know how NPR operates in terms of um, finances, in terms of profit, profitability. Um, but what I will say, it is all about profits at the end of the day. And it's, and it is polarizing people, it's polarizing the nation. I think it's safe to say that a big part of the reason why NPR's uh, listenership is dwindling is, first of all, because many of them are losing their hearing and then dying shortly thereafter <laughs> because they're 150. It's so old. boring. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 you know, very much, I think, in even, you know, to kind of go back to what you were saying about the this sort of culture of media, which used to at least apparently exist in kind of past decades, the sixties, the seventies, you know, um, this kind of culture of objectivity and expertise and sort of impartiality, uh, in a way it's, it's so interesting how it's kind of evolved because, you know, that even back then it was very much a kind of, uh, celebrity culture in a way, right. You had these kind of very well recognized media personalities. I feel like I was struggling to come up with a couple of names. I'm sure you could do a better job than I could of, you know, the, who the big ones were in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, like Walter Cronkite. Walter Cronkite. There you go. That's a good one. Everybody likes him. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, I, I, I wonder it's I wonder the extent to which it really was a because if you if you really look at the kind of business model of those organizations, I don't know how much has necessarily changed except for the fact that you have the social media that has really kind of, you know, changed the culture, I think, and, and really kind of made things much more complicated for them. Yeah, uh, well, that's what it happened. Right. I mean, they used to have just that monopoly. Uh, that's what I, exactly. That's exactly what it was, is that they had a monopoly where the television was what you had to tune in to listen to the news. And these were the only people on it. You didn't have the Internet. You didn't have um, social media like, you know, Twitter or Instagram or any or even like YouTube or podcasts. Right. Where where it's become technology has essentially disrupted, as it has so many other industries, journalism and and the word, I don't know, some can benefit from it and say it's, it, you know, it's, it's gotten better or it's made journalism better. Or some could say it's um, dwindled journalism, um, but it's ultimately going to be people who, like you said, have big personalities, are interesting enough that don't need to tune into uh, a, t- a television channel to find out what the news is anymore. And so the bigger the personality, the bigger social media influence that they do have and the message that they send there always has to be an agenda um i think is what is going to be left of journalism you know how they do these um polls every year and they show that journalists rank even lower than like politicians in terms of public approval like every year it's like notoriously low like under under 10 percent or something Mm -hmm. um so do you think that's justified like what's your take on it I think because of how polarized it's gotten, it's now about an opinion whether rather than you know reporting the facts. I can see how a lot of people just stop trusting the media because, you know, um, there was a study that came out about fake news and what percent of fake news, you know, it's just all over now. It's all it's all over, um, it's all over social media. I mean. I can see why well, I can see why it's justified. I do feel bad for those journalists who, you know, are still trying to hang on to some sense of truth and facts, and are just getting um, 
overlooked because of just how much, you know, fake news is out there, you know, to put that phrase lightly. I would say, you know, I think it's important to uh, kind of one of the things that I was getting at when I was talking about the uh, sort of celebrity of the of the news expert of of bygone eras is, you know, I absolutely take your point. I agree with you that uh, at least in terms of the culture, you know, things have gotten just so much more obviously sensational and politicized and just overtly partisan. But, you know, I, I do think it's important to point out that just by virtue of the conversation, including all these more voices now than they ever would, uh, I think it's it's much more difficult to come off as impartial and having expertise and being objective when you just have, in other words, it's easier to seem like you're objective when there's no one there to argue with you. And I Absolutely. think that that's a big part of it. Yeah. I think, I think that's also just a function of everything in modern life becoming politicized like like it didn't used to be the case that um like certain political positions like weren't even necessarily political but like as democracy has gone forward in time we, we, we're just witnessing a politicization of like more aspects of daily life i definitely think that society has kind of forced us to be uh partial to what we're saying and how we uh, view things and how we, as journalists, uh, describe things. I think technology has kind of forced us into that because what else are we going to do, you know? Um, so yeah, I agree with you all on that. It's kind of ironic to me that you say that, in other words, the uh, the kind of the way that the democratic process has, you, you like, I, I feel like you're making it sound as though it, this is the natural evolution of that. But what I'm thinking is that, you know, things have been, for the most part, uh, a lot of these issues that people have tend to have strong opinions about and that, you know, public discourse tends to revolve around are less and less uh, in in the last, I mean, even hundred years or more, uh, less and less open to uh, the legislative process at all, let alone any kind of uh, direct democratic, you know, voting or referendums or anything like that. I mean, those things, of course, still do take place, especially in certain states more than others. But, you know, uh, especially since the kind of Woodrow Wilson era, you know, more and more of U.S. institutions at the state, local and federal level have been turned into, uh, you know, basically government agencies. In other words, there's this continuity of government, which more than ever has really kind of taken a lot of these issues even off of the table. Can you give an example of that? Uh, well, I mean, for instance, uh, you know, monetary policy. Um, uh -huh. the, the, you know, uh, if you go back to the election of 1900, uh, monetary policy, the, the, it was a, this hugely contentious debate about whether or not they would have the gold or the silver standard. In fact, um, arguably, the, it, I think it's widely considered the, uh, the most popular political speech of all time, William Jennings Bryan, you know, the cross of gold speech where he was very emphatically speaking out against the adoption of the gold standard. Uh, that has, has just simply not been an issue available for, for public discourse, uh, especially since they instituted the Federal Reserve in the in 1913. Now, I mean, that's that's just one example off the top of my head that happens to be a topic that I'm you know, particularly interested in. But 
uh, it, it, since that era, especially, and, you know, really you could kind of take it back to the, the post-Civil War era is, is, you know, more and more, uh, processes that used to be legislated are now simply administrated. And yeah. It, it, it's like the, it's like you're watching, um, parts of the government just become so bureaucratic that they're to the point where they're like unable to actually function. And yeah. I think that's what you see now that's with true. like since Obama, all of the executive orders, because that's literally the only way to, to, to get things passed. I mean, how about the, you know, listen to what we're talking about. How about the FCC, you know? Yeah. Everything is regulated and then the regulations are even regulated further. Um, and it's, it's become a slow moving process. Things that should only take maybe a few days or a week or even just a day or something to get signed. So, so um, policies and, other actions are taken immediately can take up to months if not years and i and i've i've witnessed that as a journalist and people who are who work with government agencies on a daily basis uh to get to get a contract going or to get a um to get something going and they're saying how frustrated they feel because of the difficulty of of what government is doing and, and how how they're making the process more difficult is that what you're saying, El? Am I understanding you correctly? Well, I mean, the the uh, yeah, yes, and but I think more specifically, what I was kind of touching upon is not necessarily so much that they make it more difficult as as they make it less accessible to the average person. In other words, it's not even an issue that anyone is asking for their opinion on because they don't get to vote on it, and they're they're typically completely uninvolved. In other words, it's a process which is handled for them by a government agency that they have no say in administering with usually. or without their approval is what exactly you're exactly yeah 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 for sure well i wanted to ask you about this too so like i think what really has affected um like journalism and the news is really the rise of social media like and i think mm-hmm. that 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 itself has affected the way that legacy institutions have to do the news so like digital media um, companies like Twitter and Facebook and all these platforms, like they know what content um, stirs emotion in people and generates like maximum engagement. I mean, ultimately that's what they're looking for and that's what they're trying to spread. Mm -hmm. So like in order for the local news to even compete, and I mean, they're losing, but even just to compete, they've had to switch to that. So so it's like almost like the evolution, the technology has actually like molded the media itself into a new form. For sure, a hundred percent. Now, with local news, I think their main issue is before they would be the ones they had resources that they would be able to break news with whatever is happening in their community. But now, the journalists are everyday citizens. They have a camera, they have a phone, and they can document it easily on Twitter. And and local news, what they do is confirm it. They can confirm it. Uh, not just by video, because sometimes video can be falsified and you have to be able to say and, and be able to provide credibility to that video, time, location, incident by, you know, and you can call police or uh, local enforcement agencies and be able to confirm through all of that. That's pretty much what local news does. But no longer are they really, are people dependent on what's happening in their local communities by local news. Um, and that's just going to continue to dwindle. Um, and, and that's why, you know, the, a lot of journalists like who have been in the industry for, for 60, 70 years are, um, are, out of, are, you know, they're just 
some of them are still hanging on, but a, a lot of them are no longer in business. Yeah, you know, I think like prior to digital media, it was really like like there was a newspaper and then there was like what's on TV in mm-hmm. the like in the designated time slots on the 10 channels that do the news or whatever. So like there really was a limited amount of um, like like content slots that information could be put into. But yeah. now you have like, to wait given, that exactly. morning yeah, to exactly. the paper and see. Yeah. Exactly. But now what Twitter and Facebook could do is they could send like push notifications like directly mm-hmm. to your phone. Like now they're competing for attention all the time instead yep. of just in like on the newspaper or in a certain couple time slots, you know? Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me of one of the things that we were talking about in um, in one of our past episodes, Jay, where, um, you know, I briefly touched on this thing that we have here in Vermont where I now live, which is uh, called Front Porch Forum. And uh, it's essentially this electronic uh, bulletin board, which uh, just, I mean, it, in a way, it's almost kind of like a hyper-local Craigslist, but it, it functions as a newsletter, you know, so people kind of receive it via email and people post, you know, things for sale or, you know, things that they're, uh, I mean, sometimes people just put poems up there. and It's really amazing how kind of, um, you know, how, how hyper-local in nature it is and how popular it is now again, as I mentioned briefly last time, you know, Vermont is a very quirky place in, in that way. It's, uh, it's very different from the way that the, the vast majority of, of urban and suburban Americans are now living. Uh, and, you know, for me, this is all fascinating because I think one of the things that makes this conversation so interesting for me is that I have gone really out of my way, uh, probably to a, little bit of an unusual extent to really avoid mass media as much as possible. A lot of yeah. the things we're talking about right now, I'm literally hearing about for the first time in this conversation. <laughs> and, uh, and so, I mean, to me, uh, I kind of feel like there's so much of a place for, for really kind of that hyper-local uh, focus. I just think that there need to, people need to do it is really what it comes down See, to. Ella is speaking from the position of having transcended the media. <laughs> this, is what every, this is what everybody dreams of doing. <laughs> but out to the hill, man. That's all you got to do. I think it's going to start with people who either, one, uh, don't rely on financial resources, um, that they could they mm. take action and can do it themselves and, and, and have and have the the time and and the resources to do it or it's going to take uh someone who doesn't care about you know where they live and they can live out of their <laughs> car <laughs> I love that. And, yeah and to be able to just put in that time and and to really to really uh become that journalist um but i think until then you're going to always see these people who have to succumb to this polarizing uh journalistic society that you know we've we've all interned in i think the riots will help i think that the uh (laughs) i think that as cities let's just go let's just go full accelerationism and promote riots i mean i don't think anyone's (laughs) asking us i think i don't mean that seriously we would never do that on this podcast i i think it's uh it, it appears to be happening i mean in all seriousness you know whether you want to talk about something as extreme or as riots or whether you just yeah. want to talk about the overall process of of uh, globalization and how that's affecting just people's cost of living and their ability to uh you know afford a, a place to live and afford the kind of lifestyle that they come to expect when they get into that 
kind of work? I mean, this is a, a larger question than journalism in a lot of ways. You know, it's, we're, we're really kind of seeing this era take hold where you have this whole uh, class of, of educated folks, you know, much like ourselves who have these college degrees and are finding that we're not making the kind of living that we thought we would be making, you know, uh, when, especially when you compare that to the debt loads that it, that it takes for us to, to get those degrees. And, and it's really the tra- like transience has become a necessary condition to even like compete in the game. You know, I think that's that that also goes to enumerate another reason of why people aren't like able to just get their own property and like check out of the out of the mainstream narrative, you know, because like you have to be in it to participate mm-hmm. in it. I mean, yeah. I'm convinced that desperation leads to corruption, and I mean corruption in every facet. I think even what the mainstream media is doing, in a sense, is corrupt, right? Uh, when mm-hmm. they when they know they have an agenda and they know who is listening and who wants to what they want to hear, and they they feed into it. I mean, that's a, a type of corruption, but it's all part of this desperation that everybody is in to maintain a certain lifestyle. I think. I think you're absolutely right. They're getting their lunches eaten is basically yeah. what's happening. And exactly. and yeah, scarcity almost always leads to bad behavior from people. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really the same type of like, you can even apply it to just the desperation of social media companies to return like maximum engagement or maximum profit for their shareholders. Like it's not only like legacy media that's doing that. It, like we're at the point where social media platforms are uh, like shaping and molding the information that people receive in order to generate max engagement. So like they're even experienced, like they're applying the same desperation onto the population. Yeah, for sure. I think it's also fa- fair to point out that, you know, there's, there's at least to an extent and yeah, I mean the term legacy media that you use is, is excellent because I think it really describes how, you know, even the sort of social media journalism and whatever we're seeing, uh, kind of arise seemingly organically, like that is coming out of the paradigm that has been set by this legacy media. You know, they have defined, I think for us in many ways, what journalism even is. And I think if you probably ask, I mean, I maybe this is wrong at this, maybe this is not true uh, by this point, but it seems to me that a lot of the uh, social media influencer type of journalists, you know, the folks who are just out there on their own, they probably want to get picked up by CNN and Fox and the, and the larger outlets. I, I had a friend uh, that I went uh, to NYU with, and she started as an intern at GMA. She was a local reporter for about nine years. We're trying to get picked up, and she finally did. But after nine years of, I, I want to say hell, because what she had to I've seen her reports. I've seen what she had to go through uh, to get to that position. It's just crazy. But every single local reporter would, I think, would be lying to you if they said that their ultimate goal wasn't to become, make it national. Amazing. Still, you know, after all this time, they still have that kind of, I mean, I don't even know how to describe it. It's probably if it weren't for the sort of protection that they get, you know, just that it, I, I don't know how, how it all works, whether it's the FCC or like how these companies stay in business. I don't know if they would have that kind of power. I mean, it's got to be shrinking as their profit margins oh, yeah. decline as the boomers uh, like stop watching. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mary, what do you think the media response to coronavirus has been like so far? Um, you know, this is 
it's kind of a hard question because I, you know, I will say that I was, I, I'm a little biased, uh, just because. You, you mean know, you're my- not a scientist? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that, but, uh, no, I'm not a scientist. Um, so I don't know exactly all the facts of Corona. I don't know exactly how, um, how dangerous it can be, um, two adults all i know is that there have been over a hundred thousand deaths mostly concerning the vulnerable and my parents are i mean my dad's 72 he has diabetes uh my mom is you know asthmatic and it's it's a very severe case of asthma um and so i do come with a little bias because part of me just doesn't want to take that risk and you know put them at risk um and and you know yeah, you know, to me, to me, it made sense to be like extremely cautious in the beginning yeah, because exactly. like we just literally had no idea what was going on, you know. But yeah, I think no after one... like after like a few weeks, I think um, like we had gotten data and and learned more about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I I do think there was a lot of hysteria in the beginning, and there was a lot of hysteria up until the recent events that have transpired with. Um, with the protests that are happening and, uh, and George Floyd and that video that surfaced and what's that cause? Because all of a sudden you've seen a complete transformation of what the, you know, is priority, um, which is, which is uh, fair. I mean, these, these are people that are in pain and it's very, it's, it's talking about humanity and, and it should be discussed. And, and um, it's very, it was a very sad uh, video to watch and everything. Um, and so, you know, speaking to that, you definitely see the media's focus has completely changed. But even a week ago, you had people saying, we can't open governments, people are dying. I mean, 100,000 people, I still can't get over is a lot of people. But I don't know. I mean, in the beginning, I was very hesitant. And I was like, let's everyone should stay home. I don't know if that was the case, or I don't know if. Um, yeah, if well, we know would... we know for sure that there's been less deaths during coronavirus than is seasonally normal this time of year. Like we know it's actually less. I'm sorry, you say that again. So we know that there's been less deaths um, during the entire period of coronavirus than there normally is, um, like in that same period in previous years, like on average. Right. So you were saying less deaths. Yes. Yes. So like so actually there's, there's actually been less people who have died uh, since the coronavirus restrictions have started than normally die in that period. Oh, you're saying, okay, I'm sorry. I thought you were saying in the months of Corona, which is March through April, uh, less people, which is a hundred over a hundred thousand people uh, have died than let's say last year between the period of March and May. I was like, that doesn't make that's what i'm saying you are saying that so you're saying that last year i'm saying there might be a little bit of media sensationalism going on just a little bit i mean it might be surprising to a lot of our viewers but you know i'm gonna i'm going to i was gonna wait on this but i'm just gonna take this this opportunity yes because this is the first time hearing of this and granted i haven't done the research that you guys have done so please enlighten me so first of all, let me just disclaim, as we sort of did uh, a moment ago, that uh, none of us on here are, are quote unquote scientists. Uh, we are not. Uh, we are not experts in epidemiology. 
We are not presuming to give anyone health advice. And uh, uh, even just on a personal philosophical level, I believe very strongly that every single human being can and should uh, take any and every precaution that they want to in order to feel as safe as they want. And, um, you know, so, so that's kind of my general take on that. A couple of statistics to, I think, uh, bring this uh, into a little bit of, of context. We have heard a couple of times the, um, you know, and I think even that figure of 100,000 people, there's there's a lot to talk about there, uh, how, how they've kind of arrived at that figure. But that without even getting into that, I just want to say the annual leading causes of death in the United States, uh, and these are uh, directly from the cdc.gov website, uh, number one, heart disease at 647,500 per year, mm-hmm. cancer at 599, you know, let's just say almost 600,000 per year, uh, accidents, in other words, unintentional indis- injuries such as car accidents, you know, work accidents, et cetera, uh, 170,000 per year almost, chronic lower respiratory diseases, 160. 1,200. That might actually include diseases like coronavirus. I don't know. Uh, Stroke at 146,000 per year. Alzheimer's at 121,000 per year. I'm going to stop there just to not spend all day. But I think that, you know, that uh, in my mind, I think ought to bring into just kind of one alternative way of, of sort of processing some of those numbers in in context. Uh, and what's alarming to me is that we just, we don't really kind of hear very much of that, uh, really ever. Uh, I mean, I think that there are, you know, we know that we have like the, the cancer association. I I mean, that there are like these fundraisers that we sometimes hear spoken of, but generally speaking, I don't really think that people walk around very alarmed at, uh, at any of those figures. And I guess I just kind of, would be curious to get your take on, you know, how you would reconcile that as far as like what the, you know, why is the media reporting that and not these things? I mean, it really, it really goes to show how important the media still is like in the narrative of a, of a country, even though legacy media is sort of fading away. You said the stats for heart disease was uh, over 600,000 a year? Yeah, about 647,000 a year. So if you're putting the coronavirus at 100,000 in, let's say, about three months, you're looking at about 400,000 in a year. Would that be correct? Let's, sure. I mean, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, <laughs> yeah. And, well, I think here's the, the main difference with what you mentioned and what, with corona is that corona is infectious and it's and it's it has impacted a huge amount of people it's 100,000 people with heart disease one person can have heart disease doesn't mean that person sitting in the same room with another person is going to have heart disease and Mm -hmm. because of that person Mm -hmm. um so I think that was the I think that's a, a huge um fact to kind of highlight is that with corona it it is infectious and it it one person getting infected with it is going to infect another person if they're in close proximity and it's not just infectious but it's highly infectious which means it spreads at a, an enormous rate mm-hmm. and I, I would say like 400,000 in a year 
is still a significant amount of people. That would put it, what, at, at maybe the third leading cause of death if it continued in this rate? Yep, that's that would be about right according to this list. Those are all fair points. You know, I think uh, that's I, mean, I think that's exactly the reason why it was important to like have a lockdown early to figure out like how infectious it actually was. Because like if yeah. you remember the first like the reason everybody got scared is because in the media they were reporting there was like a five percent mortality rate or something, okay. and then like now we've learned that it's actually like point zero one or something. So like like the data has changed and like we've learned more about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but again, it just goes to show how important the media is in like creating and sensationalizing stories like this. Yeah, I mean, I think the question that you started this discussion off with uh, was kind of telling, which it, I believe it was something along the lines of, you know, what do you think about the way that the media is covering the coronavirus? I think it's kind of important for us to think about whether or not any of us would have known about the coronavirus if it were not. I mean, I can say with 100% certainty that I would not have. Now, again, that's, uh, you know, I'm very sensitive to the reality that if you live in a densely populated city, your experiences, I mean, you know, I have most of my family still lives in New York City. Um, I know people in in big cities all over the country, and they um, are definitely have a much different take on this based on their proximity to so many people that are getting this disease, at least apparently getting this disease. And I also think that you're absolutely right, Mary, when you point out that the, uh, the fact that it is uh, contagious, you know, it has, I think, if nothing else, this uh, element of psychological fear to it that people, you know, they, they don't really know uh, who they're going to get it from or how, but the one, the one, way that I would kind of push back on that a little bit is to point out that, you know, these other uh, major causes of death like heart disease and cancer, while it may not be the case that they are contagious in the sense that a virus is, uh, they are very, uh, very reliably linked to some environmental factors, which could very easily be controlled. For sure. Uh, Yeah, I agree. You know, there's a lot of, there, there I mean, I think when it really comes down to it, people need to ask themselves exactly what it is that they are afraid of. Mm-hmm. You know, so. I mean, like, I, to my point is like, uh, like I said, I, I am a little bit biased because of my parents, uh, but this was in the beginning. This was in hindsight. If you ask me this now, um, looking at it, and like you said, um, I don't know if the numbers would still be as if if the numbers would still have been any different if we kept the economy open i i do think that the drastic measures that were taken ultimately has led to uh more damage in the long run than than it has in the short term it's almost like they couldn't have made us feel any more unhealthy and immunocompromised than than we do feel right now like for sure I feel the most unhealthy I've ever felt in my life right now, for sure. Because you're holds up. There's no gym mentally. Yeah, yeah. Like the the, the gym yeah. is closed. They close uh-huh. all the parks out here. Like the national parks are closed. Like the best I could do is like go for a bike ride or go for a run or like do uh-huh. some push ups or something. But like like you literally cannot like exercise or like like do the things that are necessary to have a strong immune system. Like even just being around other people, like human beings have a collective immune system like uh, right. it, it feeds off of each other so like the fact that we're isolating 
well, that we think we're isolating away from a virus and then we're going to be forever isolated from it. Like, that's just not going to happen. I mean, that's just like, it's just not possible. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think, I think the bigger issue was not really closing down the economy, but I think in the beginning I understood it. Cause I think none of us, like you guys had pointed out really knew what it was or how dangerous it was in the beginning. I think once we kind of gained a clearer picture as to who it infected and how it infected them and, and who kind of was, was more uh, vulnerable to the virus. I think, I think a better policies should have been implemented in terms of like wearing masks in public. I was in the supermarket the other day and some, some old lady came up to me and congratulated me and thanked me for not, for not wearing a mask in public. <laughs> so like in, I live in the Pacific Northwest and it's not uh, mandatory to have masks here. Um, I, what is it like for you guys? Like what are the restrictions that they've like implemented in your SIDS? Um, well, I, I have noticed that more Republican um, governors are taking the more, um, you know, freeform approach of like, you know, we're going to get the economy going. And then you have more Democratic governors who are, are more stricter on those on those terms. Um, I mean, I'm in the state of North Carolina and, you know, we do have a we just elected a democratic governor i think the first time in like 15 years uh who's a lot more strict you know with uh enforcing enforcing you know uh, certain restrictions but i think the overall consensus from what i'm getting from the public is that no one's really taking it seriously and i and i and i can speak from like even back in march or april when you know my brother and i would go you know pick up food or you know we were going to the grocery store i mean everyone was out no one was wearing masks everyone was you know in the parks and um you know they were just no one was really taking it seriously and and i mean cases in north carolina i believe have gone up but like i said i don't know if it's as significant enough to have shut down the economy yeah, it's interesting uh, the way it's being handled in Vermont. Um, you know, I, I do think it's fascinating to see how. I mean, it, it doesn't surprise me that this has been turned into a, a politically divisive issue that is sort of being, you know, the <clears throat> excuse me, the the folks who are uh, apparently refusing to or kind of being more lax about it. Perhaps you could say taking it less seriously are, I think, labeled as uh, more conservative and and the. Uh, the more, you know, I guess, liberal folks are uh, sort of taking more more serious precautions. Uh, it does seem to to mirror the way that state governors are handling it. Vermont is a notoriously liberal at the state level. And so the uh, state level response has been, in my view, pretty uh, intense. Um, uh, I would like to say for my part, I do not see it as a partisan issue in any way. However, mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's very much like what you're describing in North Carolina, Mary, where where you know um, most of the people uh, in general that you sort of see, maybe not most, it just depends on where you are, but a lot of people are pretty much blowing it off. Um, and uh, and then when you get into the bigger towns, you know, the, and the cities, uh, that those are going to be, you know, they're almost locked down. And I mean, I just look at too, like the media, how quickly the media has kind of shifted the topics in the past two days 
um, you know, you, you've gone from a, a completely, like you said, sensationalized form of everybody should lock their doors and stay inside. Uh, the government should completely shut down and or not government, I'm sorry, but the economy should, should completely shut down um, to something, like I said, as horrible as the George Floyd incident and then now protesting. And it seems like everybody, especially uh, the more restrictive states have kind of not even enforced those laws anymore. It's completely, it's almost like that has forgotten. And I'm sorry, but a a virus that is really deathly and very dangerous and people are afraid of, I feel like that's something that wouldn't have been forgotten so easily. And so it almost, it almost does question, you know, the seriousness of it. Was it ever really that serious? Well, I mean, the fascinating part about that now is with, with all the riots and protests going on and everybody ignoring the social distancing and crowds of thousands of people together. I mean, we're going to find out definitively one way or the other, how, how deadly this disease actually is. So, I mean, like if what they're, if, if what they've been saying is true about it in two weeks, you would expect that all of the hospitals would be uh, overrun with COVID patients and we would have mass deaths across the country. But yeah. I mean, something tells me that we're not going to see not that happen. Be the case. I mean, like, it's probably true that they'll try and increase the testing and then say that, oh, all these people have it. But like the fact is, it's like 90 some percent oh. of people are like asymptomatic who get it. So like yeah. while it's true, there's all these infections like I, I don't think we're going to see a marked increase in the deaths. That's that's just my that's my take on it, because I think pe- these people out are going to be boosting their own immune systems like they're going to be getting the sun they're going to be around other people like and, and i think ultimately that's what it like summertime diseases go away in time you know that's like there's, there's you can't like just isolate yourself from the world around you forever as a solution to to things that are in the environment yeah for sure well, what think... a great point um no go ahead mayor um, no, I was just gonna. I was gonna say, you know, I do agree in that respect that it's like the te- the true test of this coronavirus will show itself in the coming weeks after these protests have ended. I think and like continue or continue. I don't know. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that we could we could literally get to a point where the protests are still going on because I think they're going to go on until the lockdowns are, are lifted because people don't have to go to work. So they're going to continue protesting and looting. It's like, we're going to have that going on and the hospitals could be overrun with COVID patients at the same time. If what they're saying is true. And I mean, like if that happens, I mean, it's going to be a pretty serious situation mm-hmm. in, in the United States. I think one thing to keep in mind with that Jay is uh, we were briefly talking about this uh, offline, but the, um, the possibility that a lot of this, you know, as you mentioned, it would probably be a lot less likely that you'd be seeing a lot of this um, protest activity if uh, people, if so many people were not home from work. And I think that there is a very distinct possibility that in the coming months, we will see a lot of the um, recently lost jobs be, uh, you know, filled by the growth in a lot of these um you know, the, the, the sectors of the economy, which are growing, uh, things like Amazon, for instance, you know, I would not be surprised if Amazon would be hiring thousands upon thousands of warehouse workers to meet the demand of all of these, uh, increased orders that they must be getting now that people are no longer, um, you know, even if people are allowed to return to stores and supermarkets and things like that, I think, you know, it's safe to say that a lot of people will not be just, just out of the fear. 
The other thing to keep in mind with uh, these concerns of, you know, some sort of a potential outbreak, I do agree that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll kind of find out, uh, at least in theory, you know, this will kind of how this will play out and, and how serious this virus is. But the other thing to keep in mind is that, you know, a lot of these numbers that we are hearing reported about this initially uh, have some serious issues. I mean, I'm looking right now at uh, an art, just a random article on thehospitalist.org. Again, I am not a scientist, okay? But uh, apparently 86% of reported COVID-19 deaths in New York City, uh, excuse me, in New York State, which, uh, you know, is supposed to be one of the, the harder hit states at least, uh, have significant, like at least one comorbidity factor. Uh, so, you know, these can be anything for the top ones here, are hypertension, diabetes. I know also that the very alarming figures that initially came out of Italy uh, back in March, I believe that was, uh, were something like 75% of all of those people were, uh, I mean, they were over some you know, they were either over, excuse me, over the age of 75 and they had at least one comorbidity factor. So that's the average, the average age of people who die with coronavirus is actually higher than the average age of death in the, in the, another fascinating statistic. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I also just kind of want to say, uh, you know, and, and clearly I'm kind of coming out as the, you know, the, the, the freak in the, you know, the, the non-mask. We would never say, we would never say that about you. No, I know you wouldn't. I know, but uh, but I I'll say it about myself because I, you know, it's becoming a little bit of a badge of honor at this point. Uh, The, the, the fact is that, um, you know, I think there's kind of another way of, of looking at all this. And I say this, you know, I completely sympathize with you, Mary. Uh, I have two grandmothers who are, you know, one lives in New York city. Uh, it has had cancer for, years and is, you know, not in good health at all. Uh, very much. No, I mean, it's just, it's, I mean, I mean, honestly, whose grandmother doesn't have cancer, right? We were, we were, um, you know, looking at those statistics earlier. I think they're very telling. Both my grandmothers have cancer, actually. The other one is in Florida and she's on chemotherapy. Uh, you know, I have, um, my mother died of cancer. Uh, um, you know, so it's, that's, that's one thing to kind of, just as a little aside, but all of that to say, I'm, I'm very familiar with the, the fear of, of, you know, losing loved ones to, to disease. And, uh, I will say though, I think that, you know, there's kind of another way to look at this and that is, you know, of course we don't want anyone to die. Of course it's a tragedy when people die of disease. Uh, however, you know, I think there needs to come a point where people fundamentally just ask themselves uh, precisely what kind of life do I want to live? What does it mean for me to be a human being? And just how far am I willing to go in order to avoid any potential risk of death? I mean, I, I and I say this, let's just assume that everything we're hearing about the coronavirus is true. Mm-hmm. And it, it really is as dangerous as it was made out to be. Um, I just kind of feel like despite all of that, this seems to me an extremely drastic and just frankly unreasonable response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it highlights exactly um, 
like what's going on in the United States where we we have this commitment to like the concept of materialism like and with that comes with this this idea that like like, like it's related to the atheist idea where like people are, are are literally afraid to die and they think that like they haven't come to terms with the with the idea of mortality literally at all like, I think that's a huge part of this. Absolutely. So, so, so then like they look to these scientists as people who are like, like these are now like the priests of like our modern culture and they're supposed to be saving the world and, and raising the, the life expectancy. And then after that, we're going to put our minds into the, into the computer and we're going to live forever. Like this is just like a modern fantasy that, I mean, that- can we just talk about the way that the word science is used in regular discourse? I mean, you know, I, I don't think people realize that the word science actually means practice of the scientific method. They literally talk about science as if it is a human institution. Like we need to trust science when the person <laughs> talking has never done any science, you know, they, they, what they really mean is we need to trust people who are apparently scientists. I mean, the thing is, you know, I think most people, myself included, we don't even know (laughs) what these people spend all their time doing, you know, and this is not to suggest that they're like all, you know, up to something nefarious. I'm not suggesting that at all. I'll I'll, I'll suggest it. (laughs) I mean, that's a very interesting um, and I think brilliant take on this is in terms of like science and you know, why people are going through such great lengths to make sure that, you know, uh, people are, are, you know, living longer and the, ex- the life expectancy rate is higher. Um, and because you're right, I guess a, a lot of it comes down to people are afraid to die. They are agnostic, atheists. I don't, I don't know, but that's, that's a very good point. Um, I think the difference here, though, it's not like, and I get what you're saying is like, you know, death is a inevitable part of life. I think it just comes down to, does it have to be now if it doesn't have to be now? And this is a, it's not a disease, it's a virus that is contagious. And it's not like this happens every single day in our society or every year in our society. I think the, the last I think the last contagious virus was. In, correct me if I'm wrong. Is it the Spanish the Spanish flu? Was that the last? That, one? that was the last like major mortality yeah. event. I mean, you could you know you could argue the um, the AIDS you know the Pandemic. HIV I guess was actually the, the virus itself. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, I guess you're, yeah, I guess. But, but of course, you know, we'll, we'll, save, the AIDS <laughs> we'll save the AIDS discussion for another episode. Yeah, that's it. That's, well, see, I do want to briefly touch upon some of those things, not so much, uh, relative to AIDS itself, but I mean, let's, let's also remember the fact that we've over the course of the last 10 to 15 years, we've actually had quite a few pretty major flu outbreaks. In fact, the, uh, I'm pretty sure the SARS, outbreak of what was it 2006 or seven thereabouts um, ended up killing significantly higher numbers of people than at least this has yet and again I, I totally take the point that it's it's possible that some of these precautionary measures have uh, helped to uh, flatten the curve as it were but you know I also think it's it's really interesting that just the the um, major difference in the severity of the response, I would say, you know, I just, I, I think also in the beginning, it was really important just to like, to, 
to to actually understand what was going on. Like, I mean, we literally didn't know if it was a, a bio weapon or what it was. So like it 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 made sense to take precautionary measures in the beginning, I think. But once we started to see like under a one percent mortality rate, I, I mean, the the fact that the lockdowns are still going on and we know that it's under a one percent mortality rate is absolutely oh. insane to me. Like it's it's nothing. Well, I think mortality rate or not, like I think it, it's a more of a humanitarian issue. If we can control, if we we this get is the what they want you to think, Mary. This is what they want you to think. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, but it is contagious. That's a fact, right? Yeah. yeah. And if I have the virus, um, and I know I have the virus, it would be my duty to protect others from getting that virus. No. Well, let me let me push back on that a little bit. Actually, let me ask you this: Have you ever had the flu? I, I mean, have. we've all had the flu, haven't we? We've all been exposed to that and survived it. And we also know that between, I mean, we just mentioned the the Spanish flu epidemic, so that was the the deadliest epidemic in relatively recent history. Um, that ended up killing, I believe, one percent of the world's population at the time. So uh, now at least, you know, ascribed to that to that cause. Um, And yet we don't really consider ourselves carriers of this deadly disease. Um, You know, we don't take the level of precautions against spreading the flu. And I think a big part of that is that we understand that while, yes, it's contagious. I mean, everyone has it. Sometimes it flares up. Uh, but for the, the vast majority of cases, just like most uh, diseases, really, and most viruses, particularly, the people who are most vulnerable to it are those who are already in poor health. Right. Um, now, that can come from, you know, a lot of different, a uh, lot of different factors that can, you know, just be Im- immunocompromised individuals. There are all sorts of causes to that. I, you know, one thing that I wanted to just kind of briefly touch upon and not get too deep, I want to, you know, drop some links in uh, to the show notes and particularly this absolutely fantastic discussion uh, on, a, on a different podcast, which I listened to, uh, where a, uh, a physician, a naturopathic physician is, is kind of explaining this in as much detail as he can, he can do. Uh, but there's this concept of, uh, in epidemiology, in the, the study of, of viruses in general, it, it, um, it's called Koch's postulates. And again, like I said, a link to these things. These are the, the kind of theoretical conditions which are established to uh, kind of signify that a virus is in fact causing a disease. So, I mean, I think it's, it's very important, you know, speaking of this whole kind of critical perspective on you know, science and, and kind of attempting to not, well, you know, while not completely dismissing it, obviously that would be absurd uh, to, to, you know, analyze it as critically as you would anything else. And so I think people just kind of need to ask themselves critical questions about, well, how do we actually know that a certain virus is correlated to a certain ailment in this, you know, so that, that, I mean, that's what's way. so interesting about the way that it's portrayed, like as if this is pro science, like most of the most of the stuff we like we know in science that the, the pharmaceutical and healthcare solutions presented are not the most optimal choices. Like that's actually what the science says. So like what what we call science is just like basically what the scientists tell us. But that's, I mean, that doesn't actually media, mean that it's know. science. 
Right. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I mean, I don't know exactly, like I said, I'm not, I haven't done my research on this or am I a scientist on this? <laughs> no, but, and what I've done should probably not even be called research. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but the perception We're is... We're all armchair scientists. <laughs> Well, I mean, at this point, I feel like anybody can be scientists. Right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> what the, the only the only yeah, industry great. more damaged than journalism is scientists. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, actually, I was always told. I remember one guy who actually works in journalism. He he's a lo- an older dude. He came up to me, and I think I used the word hilarious, and he was like, "Never say that word. Instead, say it ensues hilarity." I was like, oh, okay. oh boy. <laughs> so every time I say it's hilarious, I have to think back on that. Um, he ruined it for you. I know. Okay. Wow, that um, really w- I think you just ruined it for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, off that little uh, tangent. But, what, what, what has the response been at your church, Mary? What's it been like there? Um, um, like, oh, sorry. Doing, I was, are they doing like? I had a, I had a complete thought, uh, but I'll come back to that thought and go to the church question, which is that, yeah, they've, they've been doing live streams. Um, I mean, I'm not going to say I've been tuning in every Sunday or whatever, but uh, yeah, it's been live streams. And, uh, you know, I think now that things are taking um, a different turn and, and things are starting to open up, they're now doing it at capacity, I think of like 30 people. Um, and so, you know, slowly, I think people are going to start, you know, the congregation will start to, to fill back in. Um, but it did, it did for three months there, you know, everything was, um, via, via the tiny computer television. You mind if I ask you, Mary, what, uh, denomination your church is? Yeah. Um, no, I don't mind. <laughs> I don't mind. Sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, we're Orthodox. Um, oh, really? Yeah. So from, it's, from where, like where, where, what, um, uh, my understanding is that, uh, the Orthodox churches usually have like, um, you know, linguistic, uh, yes. Uh, so there's, there's the Coptic Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox. Uh, there's the, um, Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox. Sure. I'm Coptic, um, which is actually the original, the very original church, uh, the very first church ever created to be honest until it's it's you know it divided and then it became it turned into catholicism and the then great it, schism yeah and then it turned uh, into the protestant churches and you know mm-hmm. so on so on so yeah the coptic church um was the first church and is that from egypt it is from egypt yep okay. saint mark saint mark was the disciple sent there um mm-hmm. to to um to spread christianity and so and, is that where your folks are from? Yeah. Like they, they go, did they come from there originally? Did you grow yeah. up there or is that? No. They, yeah. I, yeah, I was born, born in America, raised in America. They came from Egypt uh, due to the religious persecution there. Mm-hmm. Um, they did come, they did come here, but yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. When I was in Iraq, one of our Arabic interpreters was a, um, an Egyptian Christian gentleman and uh he he's most likely coptic most likely coptic yeah i don't yeah. remember um discussing it with him in detail but he um he had a lot of a lot of uh pretty pretty emphatic things to say about the uh, religious persecution suffered there by by the christian minority i thought it was you know it was just like this whole world that i knew very little about um my my family's from the former soviet union we're we're jewish so not not you know orthodox but uh, very familiar with that whole kind of 
that whole yeah. culture, so to speak. That's, and, yeah. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a whole, I think a whole topic I could get into too for another. <laughs> for sure. Hours. I was just curious. I just wanted um, to kind of get a little context. Yeah, church, so, so. I mean, Egypt was uh, primarily Coptics and then, you know, our, our language was Coptic. It wasn't Arabic. Uh, Is that right? Yeah, that's our, and we still today in churches speak the Coptic language. Um, it only became Arabic after the Ottoman Empire, the Arab Empire invaded Egypt. Mm -hmm. It was it was Roman Empire had taken over, and then you know you have the Ottoman Empire, um, and we were there came a time where it was like you you're forced to learn this language or you cut off your tongues, and so mm -hmm. yeah, so so now the majority of cops do speak. Do speak Arabic. Um, I feel like there's still, I think, about th a very, very small minuscule community, about 350 who speak it natively. Wow. Uh, yeah. Um, but the majority of us do speak Arabic now. We do still speak Coptic in, in, in our in our churches. But yeah. That's fascinating. Sorry for the tangent. I mean, I feel like oh yeah, that we just went on a completely different. We tangent, did, but... yeah. I, I hope to God you remember that the point you were gonna. You had like something you wanted to come back to. I did, and it was about uh, the perception of the flu, and it was never as uh, non-life-threatening as the coronavirus, and correct me if I'm wrong, but are the stats of flu deaths in a three-month period larger or smaller than the coronavirus deaths have been this year? So it definitely varies. I mean, it, it year by year, we, I think it's a, it, I feel like I've heard the figure a hundred thousand roughly like from year to year. I mean, it, I, it is safe to say a whole ton of people die of the flu every single year. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's with the vaccine too. So with the vaccine as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. and you know, I, I think that, um, again, there's, there's a lot to be said about all of this. It's just, I, I wanted to really just kind of scratch a little bit of the, the surface and mm -hmm. really just kind of, uh, make a case that, you know, there, there may be quite a bit more complexity and nuance to this whole subject than I think is, is generally being portrayed in mass media and that people are mm -hmm. inclined to. And look, again, I, I, I always try to, you know, take as, as sympathetic of an approach with people as possible. I think it's really important to understand that, you know, uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't even talk all of this crazy nonsense to your average person because it's just like, I mean, why upset people? You know, I, I think it's important for people to, well, I, I think it's, it's not just this like dismissive thing, like, oh yeah, you know, pat you on the head and you know, you're, you can't understand it. It's, it's more that, there is a lot to be said for the effect that a person's level of stress and concern and all of these things have on their health. And I mean, I mentioned my, my grandmother who lives in New York, you know, I, my whole approach with her, with all of this, I mean, I don't say any of this to her. I just like leave her alone and let her do whatever it is that she feels safe doing. You know, I think, I think it's hard when people learn a lot of like, learn about this, like when they first hear a couple of these things that, that put cracks into the, the science and progress narrative. Like it's hard for people to like get their minds around it. But like, if you really pay attention to it and start to put all the pieces together, the whole narrative really does start to fall apart. Like people think that we live longer now than we used to like hundreds of years ago. But, but the fact is after you adjust for uh, infant mortality, it's, we're actually not 
increasing. It's like extremely, it's increasing, but extremely marginally. Yeah, um, which which is totally fair. But I also think, I mean, especially myself being a parent, you know, I think it's extremely important to give credit where credit's due. And it, it, while I'm sure there's more complexity to this as well, even the infant mortality rate, I mean, we could have a pretty dark conversation about that. But the point is, I think that that is, is uh, a huge achievement uh, you know, of, of modern science. I right, also but, but is it of science or is it of um, like improvements in sanitation? And that like is that? exactly what I was just about to say, which I, I, I mean, that is science as well, but I think uh, it's very important for people to understand that modern urban sanitation has been one of the uh, by, by far the yeah. most significant factors in increasing lifespans into the 19th and 20th centuries. I mean, that's, you know, Major. I mean, there's, I mean, I, I know, I, I don't want to bring Bill Gates into this, but there's <laughs> no. a, there, I mean, you must not utter his my name. Boy. I know. <laughs> my boy, <Bill. laughs> I'm, I'm aware, but like, you know, the, there are countries and third world countries who are still dying because they don't have the right sanitation and at a, a huge, large amount of numbers too. It's not just like a, a, a small percentage. Oh no. So, sanitation is huge. That's it's definitely a huge, huge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, I know we probably want to wrap this up, but like just my final point on this is like, I completely understand in the grand scheme of things, looking at a, a percent and saying, you know, well, this is only 1% of the population or less than 1% of the population that's going to die from this. I think for me, it's not about how many die or, or how little die. It's just about that people do die. And do we have, we have a moral obligation. I feel that if I know, I, if I know that I can infect somebody or if I have it, I feel like there is a moral obligation to say, cause there's a, there's a saying like it only takes one, it's one person, one person is valuable enough. And we say that with the military, when one of our military men die, we say that, um, in, in just any amounts of situation, a hundred thousand may seem like, you know, it is less than 1% of the population, way less like point. I don't know. We're what 400 million people. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, I completely understand that, but a hundred thousand—these are a hundred thousand lives. And no, I mean, in, in my opinion, it makes sense to take, like, if you're one of those people, to take every precaution that you can. You know, yeah. like I'm, I'm not saying they should just go outside and like <laughs> accept death. That's not. That's not yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, I, I 100 think that every person should take, you know, uh, whatever reasonable precautions. And I'll even take it a step further and say that the rest of us need to, you know, I would say the way that applies to the rest of us is that we need to kind of give those people the space to feel safe, you know, in in whatever way that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if I could give kind of my final take, I just think that this, you know, what has happened in the last three to four months uh, has just not necessarily fit that definition. And No, absolutely. I mean, I I definitely think we took extreme drastic measures that are going to have long crippling effects to the economy, which are going to have long crippling effects to millions of individuals, um, which in turn is a much more significant um, serious damage, like effect that has happened because of this government or this economic shutdown. So I agree that the way we went about it and shutting down the economy, you know, I completely understand where you're coming from, and I agree. My thing is, what 
what should we have done in place of that to protect those individuals? I don't think everyone just going out and doing as they please to continue lives is the right way to go about it. I do believe precautions should be in place. And I do believe that I do believe that we should have figured it out a lot faster and been able to open the economy a lot faster. But um, are the but Koch brothers say, paying you? Are they paying you? <laughs> no, I- no. But I, will say, <laughs> but I will say, though, a good point to this is how much of the media's um, how much of the media's uh, influence really impacted the the shutdown of the economy as long as it has been. You have Trump, who I, I think didn't take it seriously at first, didn't want to shut down the economy, and then the media and everyone else started uh, sensationalizing this virus, and you have his health, what was his name, Dr. Fauci, um, kind of say no. He was also around during, during the AIDS crisis. People should look into that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have all these people and these professionals and these medical doctors saying, no, we, we have to take uh, critical and, and, and serious action on this. Um, so, again, a lot of it is, is, a, is, a, is a domino effect and people are going to listen to who they think they should listen to. And, you know, I think the economy, you know, shut down as long as it did because of uh, the voices and the noises that, that were happening surrounding this. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. And I mean, I, I, a part of me kind of wanted to end it on like the really nice positive note where you were saying like, one life is worth it, it is worth it. (laughs) But I'm going to end it on a little bit of a darker note here. uh, Now that we've got this far. And and I, I want to just kind of point out to what you're saying, Mary, that, that, um, and I, I agree with you that again, there are, you know, there are precautions which could have been taken, which I think would have been very reasonable and warranted, uh, you know, in the face of, of even the potential for some of this danger. Uh, however, and, and this is something which is talked about in the mainstream. And again, I don't want to play into the political divide. I know that kind of uh, I've heard that Trump has talked about this to some extent, making the point that, you know, what about the lives which are, I mean, it's not just this kind of theoretical concept of the economic fallout. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are some pretty well-documented correlations to things like suicide rates, alcohol addiction rates. Um, You know, we talked uh, pretty extensively about, I mean, just how this was affecting our personal health. I, by the way, have been spending a ton of time in the garden lately. I totally recommend that to you guys. If you have a little bit of dirt, please, please go out and, and play in it. Uh, but I will say that, you know, for, for folks to be cooped up inside, you know, having no social interaction there, I mean, regardless of how you feel about the masks as a, uh, a, a, a countermeasure against infection, you know, maybe you could make the argument that it's reasonable. I think people are kind of underestimating the psychological effect that this <laughs> is having on people. I can yeah, I sure. say the parent of two small children. Uh, this is not an easy subject to discuss with them. They're, you know, they're totally freaked out by this. Um, and, and, you know, these are anecdotes, but it, I could probably come up with some pretty decent numbers to suggest that, you know, uh, we could end up seeing a much bigger fallout from this kind of thing, depending on how much you want to measure of it uh, than, you know, a hundred thousand or two, you know what I mean? I mean, this is, it, it can people can have a pretty hard time with some of these things. It could oh. even lead to riots or something. 
you know, yeah. the, last, the last point yeah. that I wanted to make is in, in economics and game theory, there's a, a cycle called a vicious circle. Uh, and what that means is that, it, and this is in relevance to, to Fauci and Bill Gates and pharmaceutical corporations and all of this, where, where when you introduce uh, one solution into a circle and then that creates another solution and another solution. So like the idea is basically if you come up with like a vaccine or a, or a, or, or a pharmaceutically developed pill for something, then you develop another pharmaceutical pill to counteract the effects of the first one. And then another one after that, and then it just turns into this, to what they call a vicious circle. So I think mm-hmm. that's uh, extremely relevant to, to what's going on in the healthcare industry right now. Mary, bring us back to more positive for the low. <laughs> well, well, I wanted to end it on the darkest note. That we, <laughs> we, I mean, we brought Mary no, all the way back. There's no doubt that, uh, you know, a vaccine is, yeah, there's no doubt people are, are trying to profit from this and, and always will be. But my, what I will say, uh, just, to, uh, just you know, my final thoughts is I do believe some areas were luckier than others. I'll say being in North Carolina and during this time, I, I am luckier because I do have a park near me. I do have a backyard. I do have a front yard. And I'm always... I think since March on a daily have been able to go out uh, undeterred and, and not being able to be and not be able to be near anybody because we're just so spaced out anyways and naturally. And I would go to my park, I think, every day and nobody would be there um, just because, uh, you know, uh, just because um, I think that's just North Carolina is a lot. There's a lot of bigger spaces and mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of, you know, other ways that people can um, can they have backyards and they have slides and they have pools, private pools and everything that they could just go. Yeah. I think in New York and, and cities like where you are, uh, Jay, um, it may be a lot harder, definitely, because you, you can't just step outside your front door. Um, and it's I think almost that- as if God is telling us we shouldn't be living in these urban <laughs> cities. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I definitely understand the, the points that you guys are making and, and, and I do understand like, I do understand that, that there are bigger ramifications here that have happened um, from from this, and, and it is affecting so many different people in so many different ways um, just by, just just because. So, yeah. That's all right. Well, thanks for coming on, Mary. Yeah, thank you. That was thank you guys for having me on, and I, um, I wanted to say this earlier, but I didn't. Um, I am flattered that I'm, like, your first guest, right? Yeah, yes. hopefully you, you are the first. You guest. won't just be the first, but hopefully you'll come back. So. Oh, for sure I'll come back. I, I loved speaking with you guys, and um, it was a lot of fun, and uh, it was a, a very engaging conversation um, that I that I definitely um, enjoyed discussing. So. Well, thanks again for coming on. Thank you, guys. Um, I wanted to take a brief moment to just give a very special thanks to all of our recent uh, Patreon subscribers. Uh, the. Um, the apprentices, of course, uh, we will not be naming you individually because you do not warrant that. However, uh, we, we thank you nonetheless collectively. But uh, very special thanks to both Robert and Victor, who are uh, our recent surveyors. So much love to you guys. And we'll see you all next time.